This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back everyone and thanks for listening. No one likes a crisis, but leaders prove their value during an emergency more than at any other time. Crisis management is now a degree at many major universities. I discovered there are nine different types of crisis identified by researchers, and they are natural disasters, malevolence, technical breakdowns, human breakdowns, challenges, mega damage, organizational misdeeds, and work and school place violence, along with, believe it or not, rumors. When a crisis arrives, it brings with it three unwelcome situations with all nine types of crisis that I shared. First, there's the threat to the area or organization. Secondly, the element of surprise and shock. And thirdly, a very short decision time. We've had our share of crisis here in Michigan during recent years. The Great Recession was brutal to virtually every sector of our economy. The Flint water crisis is still a crisis at many levels. PFAS is fast taking on the characteristics of another man-made crisis. And flash flooding in Michigan recently that swept away homes, memories, and left people with nothing more than their resiliency. This spring and summer, we are being tested again with frequency of rain. Much of our fields will not be planted and the overall yield for some of the primary crops that drive our economy will be down as much as 30%. But more on that later in the show. The test for any leader is to address, handle, and lead through the crisis at the same time, ensure that the duties related to an organization's core mission don't suffer. Gary McDowell, the director for the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development, is just such a leader, and he is back with us today to discuss not only crops in the field or the lack thereof, but he will also share with us about the core mission of MDARD as it pertains particularly to food safety and our mission of food security. Come back and be with us. Join Jerry, Gary McDowell, and me, Dr. Phil Knight, in just a moment. Welcome back. As promised, everyone, Gary McDowell, the director for the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. He's back with us here on Food First Michigan. It's great to have you back. Thanks for coming back on with us. Uh, we, we did have you on a few weeks ago, and you were quite insightful about where we're at as a state in regard to the the you know crops that are being planted and the expected yield and at that time we were all sloshing around but we've had a little sunshine and a little warmth so uh director could you update us on where you think we're going to be and how this is going to work out as as best as we know today yeah that's what have to be as best as we know today because um um so much is still out there um to see how it all turns out we finally did um you know, get some dry weather, and the farmers were able to get a lot of crops in. But of course, it was too late for for many of our farmers. And um, right now, we're just hoping and that we have a nice fall. If we could get a real nice September and October, um, you know, there could be some pretty good yields yet. 
And some parts of the state weren't as hard hit as other parts. Probably the hardest hit that we're seeing now is the southeast part. Um, those counties down there got um, got so much rain that they're probably some of them only got like 20% of their crops planted. Some Ooh. of the farmers in that area. In other other areas like the Thumb and that, that wasn't as nearly as bad. And so, um, and it just depends. Like I said, it always depends on the weather so much that right. we'll see what happens if they can get them. Um, even the late crops, if they get a couple, a month or so, you get a late frost, we still could have some pretty good yields there. So we'd, um, we're going to have to wait and see how it all ends up this fall. Right. Well, I know you guys will keep your keep your hand on the pulse of that. And, um, of course, we're thinking about that. And, and, um, and you know, Jerry, the uh, director said that he was really looking for a really good September and uh, you're kind of in charge of that, aren't you? A good September. Yeah, I got it. I got it. It's happening. We're, we're going to say it. We're going to just say okay. it's happening, and we're going to believe. Uh, you know, I think we want to hear how the farmers are doing, too. You know, we know that there was a lot of stress and and a lot of people just wondering if they could, you know, continue at all. And so so how are they doing? You know, how, how are our farmers doing? There's yeah, there's still under of course a lot of stress. We're still when we're talking about the weather and what has to happen and you know, so often it doesn't. It's um it's been a very, very stressful for our for our farm community. We have been working with the MSU over there through extension. Um having some you know, some trained people in mental health and that be available for our farm community. And there's just a lot I think we can do as individuals when we do see a farmer that um, maybe is not the same. Um, maybe um, take a little more interest and to make sure that that's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just a just a thank you or acknowledgement. I know what you're going through a very tough tough period here, and and um, there has been some. I think the last time we talked, the state of Michigan has got 15 million dollars to help the farmers with low interest loans and initiation fees for those loans. That's um. Uh, it's just been finally signed off on, and that's getting to our lenders. So um, hopefully, I mean, it will definitely help some of our producers. Take a, it might ease uh, some of the stress, but there's um, still with the with the tariffs and the and those are going on our soybean producers especially. Um, that, that's still ongoing situation. They hope we can get that resolved quickly. And so soy is one of our main drivers for the um, agricultural part of the economy. Isn't that true, Director? Yeah, it's one of our, uh, Michigan, the two top crops by far are corn and soy. Um, in a lot of these markets, overseas markets, especially like with China where we're having the tariffs, these are markets that these farmers have worked a long time to develop. Mm-hmm. We're talking years and years, and, and they continue to work to develop these. And now we're, uh, the big fear is that um, we won't get them back. Because time goes on, they're uh, picking up new markets. Chinese are right now investing heavily in South America, especially Brazil. Um, they're building railroads, deep sea ports to get their soy from there. Hmm. So, um, and that's that's a real fear that those markets are gone. So we got to continue to look for new markets, and um, that's one of the um, what the department does. We we do have a food and ag investment program, right? And um, for in Michigan, we have an export department in there that, that um, we go around um, different trade shows around the world promoting Michigan crops, Michigan products, and 
and we take our our producers are with us to sell what they have and um creating new markets for, for Michigan products. Well, it sounds like that's going to be pretty important. You know, we've heard we've heard from dairy too that they spent an yeah. awful lot of time and effort over many years to develop their their markets uh, overseas, and that the the tariffs are are hampering that effort in a similar way, where they're concerned about you know if this doesn't get resolved fairly soon that they're going to lose those markets permanently, or at least have to fight just like they never had them. Yes, that's true, and yeah, dairy's. Dairy's big in Michigan. It's our largest. Um, we talked about corn and bean, you know, beans being so large, but dairy is our number one hmm. um, ag product. It's fifteen point seven billion dollars a year in Michigan, and that's and right now. Like just um, if you go by St. John's, you see right. that big plant going out there. Yep. That's that's um that's going to be using Michigan milk. There now you go. Looking at maybe twenty percent of the milk in Michigan will be processed right there, like Glendia, Glendia plant. Well, probably the yeah. only guy that's been on the show more than you has been Ken Nobus from Michigan okay. Department, <laughs> <laughs> from the uh, Michigan Milk uh, uh, Producers, yes. Producers Association. And uh, Ken's been a great friend to us. In fact, uh, MMPA and UDIM, Jerry, how much milk is it? That down? They just gave it to us at their association meeting last year. It's 150 gallons a day. and They upped it. They yeah, they upped, upped it, it. from and, 100 to 150, and a, and 50, 50 pounds of cheese every day. day. So yeah, to I the mean, food banks, yeah. Well, it's, it, they're great, great, great partners with us as as many of the folks that you mentioned, and of course, MDARD is a great partner for us in this mission of food security. And we're talking with Gary McDowell. He is the director for the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. He's going to come back and be with us for another segment. All of you folks, come back and be with us too. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Gary McDowell, the director for the Michigan Department of Ag and Rural Development. He's our friend and a colleague and a fellow. He is a farmer as well. And um, uh, director, I, I do tell retell a story that I heard you tell because um, you served in the legislature and... Um, and you've, you've been appointed now as the director for MDARD. And there's a story you tell that your brothers are pretty happy when both <laughs> those things happen. you want to tell your version, or should I tell it? <laughs> well, I was, um, when I got this position, and I was the first one I was elected, um, I'm wondering how my brothers would feel about it, you know, me not being around anymore on the farm and do my share of the work. And they looked at me, and they just kind of both smiled and and it kind of dawned on me. They're glad I'm going because um, they keep me away from the machinery. <laughs> yeah. The equipment will be, and the equipment um, also is very happy, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I'm kind of the guy that um, goes out, and I start hearing this clang and bang and stuff, and hopefully I can drag the piece of machinery up to the shed. <laughs> Have my brother Bob take a look at it. There you go. Yeah. Well, you guys, uh, you and your brothers own McDowell Brothers Farm and McDowell Hay, and uh, that's up in the UP. So, um, and, and then I know that um, you're kind of the, the, the patriarch there of the family. You're the oldest of 10 kids. That's correct. Yes, I am. 
So life in the U- life in the Upper Peninsula, and I have a, a sitting across from me here another Uper. Um, you, you guys weren't raised close together, were you? Not too close. Although my mom was a school teacher, and her first uh, job was in Rudyard. Oh, so she was only there for one school year, and then uh, my dad, who was in the military, got restationed, and they had to move. But uh, So we have a little bit of a connection there, but most of my growing up was in Barriga, Michigan, which is significantly west, a little bit north. Yeah, yeah, yeah Barriga, that's a beautiful area up there, the Keevanaugh and up that way. I know a lot of people, when you say you're from the UP, they assume we know each other right away, like we're one great big neighborhood. <laughs> but actually, it's um, about 300 miles across the UP. <laughs> right. right. But everybody from the UP feels it's very special, and we have a special bond there. Um, there's a number of employees here at MDART uh, who are from the UP. Oh. Uh, we grew up on farms and wanted to contribute you know, to ag. And this is a way that they're able to do that. And it's not just from the UP. Most of our staff does have an, an ag connection. And a lot of them still farm, just um, hobby farms. And that just uh, um, is so much a part of their lives. Yeah. Can't get away from it, right? No, it is. Like the, always that old saying, you know, you, I guess you can you know, say, take the boy out of the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. Right. The country, yes. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, one of, the, one of the big debates during the Industrial Revolution was how would it change people's fundamental attitude toward life when they weren't close to the earth anymore. So it's just, uh, and of course, you know, the, the debates rage on about all kinds of things, but, you know, what you're talking about in terms of your feeling for life and, and not wanting to give up what it means to be a farmer is, has been persistent for a long, long time. Well, we're, we're kind of happy that, um, that, that Director McDowell gave up a bit of farming, at least the, the equipment's happy, <laughs> in order to fill this role as the uh, executive leader for uh, the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development. And, and Director, there is so much that your department um, does for this state, and I wish you'd just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about that. And of course, one of the things that we're very attentive to in our world is food safety. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a high priority for you personally, as well as for MDARD as a whole. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have, um, at MDARD, we do have four key goals. And the number one in, is food safety, human, and animal health. That is our number one priority here. Um, the environmental, sustainability, economic development, and efficient, effective government. But we have, um, we regulate over 90 programs, and almost all of them um, get right back down to, to food safety. Hmm. That's what our, our main, mission, main mission here is, and we take that very, very seriously. That is um, paramount. If there's ever a question, it's the first question is, um, make sure that the food is kept safe. There's um, we just had eight, we call them sampling teams, mm-hmm. and their emergency preparedness. We did eight of them across the state. We just finished up yesterday in Taylor, Michigan, our final one. And we had all our staff are trained in emergency preparedness. And just um, there's a good example. This, we had an exercise back when we had the flooding over in the west part of the state. Right. And um, that's the number one emergency in Michigan by far, our floods. And the governor was, she was there and, and was asked um, the different divisions, what is your role in this emergency? And our emergency preparedness director got up. Um, his name is Brad Deacon. He's also a youper. 
mm-hmm. from Menominee County. But um, he got up and he just started naming off the things that we were doing immediately. And we were um, checking all the fertilizer, pesticide supplies to make sure that they were safe. We were doing food safety, checking our restaurants, our pr- food processors, um, our retail stores, making sure that the food was safe. We were doing weights and measures without checking the petroleum, making it that was safe. Um, um, our people in the livestock were checking, like any large livestock operations, to make sure that the manure supplies and that, or supplies dumps, were not getting into the water, contaminating that. Um, even um, he mentioned, like our, we um, also regulate our pet shelters that they were unnotified that they're probably receiving additional pets who are being abandoned in this mm. emergency. The list just went on and on, and um, it really impressed upon me. We're a small staff. And over here at MDARD, but our responsibilities are huge when it comes to public safety and food safety and human and animal health. And like I said, that's our number one um, mission here, and we take that so seriously. You know, it's such an important part of what we do as well. Um, when we when we talk about food banking, uh, you know, a lot of people think about the distribution side, which is critically important, no question about it. But we think one of our number one priorities is food safety. Same reason. I mean, every day there are recalls. There's food recalls from all kinds of different places. And we have to make sure we know where the food is we and who got it and how much of it they got. So if there's a recall or a problem of mm-hmm. any kind, we can get in touch with those people and get that food back as soon as possible so that, again, the whole food supply uh, remains safe. And, uh, and so not just food recalls, though that's one example that people don't often think of food banks as being responsible for. But, you know, we're certified at the very highest levels by uh, AIB and other independent uh, certifiers to make sure that the food supply that we, that we do is safe. I mean, we don't want a person ever to be sick because of anything we've done. And and so we appreciate your efforts there as well. We know that when food comes to us, we we pretty much count on the fact that you're doing your job making sure it's safe before it gets to us. And then we take the baton from there and make sure that the community we serve is also served well. Yeah, you do, you do an excellent job, and we appreciate that. We appreciate the cooperation and the coordination that we have with the food banks. Um, I was just... Um, I mentioned that these um, preparedness exercises and how important they are. And um, I don't know if I got my numbers exactly correct here, but um, I gave three numbers, um, 13, 741, and 350 million. Mm -hmm. And what the correlation is, back in early 2000s, there was a a salmonella outbreak in in the peanut butter coming Mm -hmm. out of Georgia. Right, yep. And that's the... Number of people who died, number of people who were hospitalized, and um, what it cost the peanut butter industry, the $350 million. And that's not even including the farmers, how much they were impacted. But the number one issue, of course, was the human health. And because um, they weren't prepared, they didn't know where the, where the problem, where it was coming from. And that's why we have these sampling exercises, that we are pre- going to be prepared. We had different scenarios at each one. And... Our field people got out there, and it wasn't just our field people. It was our people here in Lansing. We're all included in these emergency preparedness exercises. Well, I'm not sure that your numbers are right, but they are consistent, because I remember uh, hearing you speak up at the food processors um, 
uh, state, state association meeting up at Mackinac, and you shared these numbers. I wrote them down, and I was going to ask you today what 13, 741, and 350 million <laughs> meant to you. And I'm, you beat me to the punch, and I'm glad you did. So, I don't know if I got them consistent two times in a row or not. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I don't know if they're right, but they are consistent. <laughs> He's Gary McDowell. He's the director for Michigan Department of Ag and Rural Development. That's Jerry Brisson over on the other side of me. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. You're listening to Food First Michigan. And we'll all three be back in just a moment. Food First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back here on Food First Michigan. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight with Gary McDowell, our friend and the director for the Michigan Department of Ag and Rural Development. And, uh, you know, we all recognize, uh, first of all, if I want to go back to something we talked about in the first segment, and that is um, we tend to think about the military and, uh, and people in law enforcement, and we're pretty good about sticking our hand out, shaking their hand, and telling them thank you for their service. But, you know, Jerry, I think it's a time where we really need to include a third group into that, and that, that is our, our agricultural community and specifically our farmers. No question about it. We depend on them in, in ways that are so obvious, but that we really don't talk about. You know, kids don't, a lot of kids, don't even know where food comes from anymore. You know, they go right. to the store, they get the food, and the food comes from the store. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's uh, it, now we have farmers markets where there's some exposure and there's some things happening in school. And we know about the lab that uh, Michigan Farm Bureau goes around with. To, now, too. Yeah, yep. to help kids understand this. And, of course, so uh, we spoke about MSU Extension and the great work they do and 4-H. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that there's nothing going on. Yeah, Scott Piggott's not proud of those two uh, science labs <laughs> at all, by the way. Jeez. But, yep. uh, but nonetheless, I think you're right. It's good to be reminded of the the hardworking and dedicated people on those farms that are that are really nourishing us all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it leads as a good segue into this uh, topic I'd like to cover with you, Director, and that is really what the role and impact economically. You talked about that, and one of the four uh, pillars for MDARD is you know economic impact, and it is significant. And I'd love for you to talk with our listeners a little bit about that. Um, in Michigan, ag is one of our major industries. It's um, uh, most of the time it's called it's the number number two, and um, it's over eight hundred thousand Michigan residents are employed with food and ag. It's um, one hundred and four billion dollars a year industry in this state. Uh, we lead the nation in seven different commodities: um, asparagus, black beans, cranberry beans, cucumbers, tart cherries, Niagara grapes, and squash. And um, it just is over, and this is one fact that really kind of I think surprised a lot of people. In Michigan, we grow over 300 commodities for sale. We're only second to California. Uh, we're just blessed with that. On the west side of the state, we have that fruit and vegetable belt that runs basically the whole side of the lower peninsula. And then you go across the state and down the south side, there's just the the fields and fields of beans and corns and up into the thumb area, which is some of the, around Saginaw, some of the most unproductive farmland anywhere in the world. Um, the bean crops that come out of there, the most of them are exported to Mexico. Hmm. And then you get up into the, and the dairy farms scattered all through that, and you get up into the UP, and the, there's small farmers up there. And we also have our forestry industry, too, which is um, 
kind of considered part of ag too. And um, so Michigan, it's just, um, it's really big. It actually employs, we actually employ about 17% of the people working in Michigan. Their jobs are, can be traced back to agriculture. You know what? I, those are some some amazing statistics right there. And I, Jerry, I know you, you you're going to jump in on this, but I got to I got to go get ahead of you here. You know, the one that just blows my mind every time I hear it is Niagara grapes. <laughs> who who would have thunk it, right? Yeah. You know, and, and we're and we're number two, like in blueberries. Sometimes number one. Uh, different crops were back and forth like that, but um, I don't have the number here. But like in the top five. We're in so many different commodities. Being being the second most um, commodities of any state, besides right, right behind, not to say right behind, but second only to California. That um, really tells a lot about the diversity in Michigan Hank. Well, it, it's also an opportunity uh, for food security. I mean, one of the things every industry has a certain amount of what they call shrink. You know, things that they put together and can't sell or don't sell or doesn't work out the way they thought. And so there's a certain amount of, you know, you got it now. It didn't sell. What do you do with it? And food banks, of course, benefit from that across the the entirety of the food supply chain when people have surplus or excess. And we've worked with uh, MDARD and the state of Michigan for a long time on unlocking that excess that, you know, just because you have to, you're, you're going to plant what you think is going to be the right amount and Sometimes it's it's more than you need, and so then what do you do? And, you know, we've talked about the complications in labor and lots of other things that create these dynamics, and it is a pretty interesting situation. But fundamentally, one of the big five opportunities in food banking is to take even a harder look at what the typical surpluses are across not just the commodities you, you listed specifically, but all the 300 uh, products that, that Michigan is known for and producing quite a bit of, so that we can really, really uh, expand the partnership we have with with growers and and uh, manufacturers to to get as much as we can at the lowest possible cost to really end hunger in Michigan. It is a key. Uh, uh, aspect of the blueprint that we're creating for the Food Bank Council of Michigan. And and we know, Director, that the work you're doing uh, with us and, and that we're going to continue doing is a really important part of unlocking that potential. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also making sure the food is safe and nutritious. And in Michigan food, we have a reputation for that. Oh, that's a fact. I mean, we hear that over and over from our national network, Feeding America, that wants us to source more and more of our food that we can't use, you know, immediately here in Michigan. They want us to really source that to the national network so that, you know, less rich uh, produce rich states would have some access to, you know, healthy, nutritious food. And, you know, and if that helps create a secondary market for some of our farmers, we're happy to help be that conduit and create that for them. Uh, you know, they won't make as much money as there's Kroger or Myers buying it, but, you know, at, at some level, they very, they very much appreciate mm-hmm. it because it does create some secondary markets for them. Yeah, it absolutely does. We have um, the Double Up Bucks program. And um, right now we're working through the legislative process, but we're hoping to be able to double that that double up bucks program for this next coming year, and that provides some um, fresh produce and vegetables uh, for our SNAP programs or recipients. And um, and we're looking at hopefully 
um, 20% of that will be grown in Michigan. That's our goal. That's awesome. That's that's awesome. And fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables are, again, one of the most requested items that we get through our pantry network. Now, part of the mm-hmm. reason is because historically, it's what we've had the least of, so we will have to take some responsibility for the <laughs> demand, right? But, but nonetheless, um, you know, when you're managing on a very, very tight budget, things that spoil are, are one of the things you avoid because you don't want any of your dollars to go to waste. Yeah. And so these programs that help people get more of the fresh fruits and vegetables are critical to their health, critical to their diet, critical to the way they feel, and we believe critical to their success as well. Yeah, this came out of the Flint water crisis, actually. I understand that. Um, what can we do for these children who were infected with this lead poisoning? And they said fresh fruit and vegetables right. is probably um, the, one of the number one things we can do. I think it showed a great partnership between MDARD, um, Michigan State University Extension, and the Food Bank Council, particularly the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan, when all three of us came right together and was able to say, okay, here's the, here's the food and the, uh, that would help mitigate the circumstances around the lead exposure. Uh, the teaching was being done by uh, Extension and as well as MDARD people, and you know the Food Bank was able to deliver the food right there to the neighborhoods where the kids were at. And I think it was a great picture of a beautiful public-private partnership between the three of us. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, and hopefully um, some good came out of it. I'm sure it did. Yeah, we, absolutely. We got a lot of food was distributed and um, for those children who were um, in such need at that time and still are. He's Gary McDowell. He is the director for the Michigan Department of Ag and Rural Development. He's our friend and our partner in this great work for a food-secure Michigan. And, Director, we can't thank you enough for being with us and for your insight. And um, I, I, I just have to stand with your brothers and say I'm really happy you're off the farm. <laughs> you, you don't have any equipment I can... <laughs> well, we, we can find you something. <laughs> Well, we're happy you're where you're at, brother. That's the truth. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work that the food banks are doing across Michigan and across the states. We'll stay at it together. Okay. Thank okay. you, Director McDowell. Jerry and I are back in just a moment to wrap up this show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry and I are back here in the WJR studio. Jerry, Gary McDowell, director for MDARD. Great friend and uh, I think passionate about our mission as well. No question about it. And when we talk about solving food insecurity in Michigan, the, the conversation we had with Director McDowell is a really concrete example of how important Michigan is to agriculture, not just in Michigan, but in the country, mm-hmm. and the opportunity we have to really think about this industry and how it can be mobilized even more to serve the community better. And he is a, a advocate for this. He has been, you know, part of this conversation in significant ways. And it's part of the reason that we really feel this is a solvable problem. Well, I, th- I was going to say that I, I think one of the encouragements in, that we take from this partnership is when, when, when individuals and professionals and leaders like Gary McDowell, who happened to be the director of a very large state department, all believe in our mission and want to come alongside of us, 
it can't help but be encouraging that we really believe we can get this done. And so there are literally millions of pounds of produce out there and available that we need to find and, and make sure get into the system in the right way at the lowest cost. That takes more than just uh, idea, right? That takes actual work, and we just got to make sure that Director McDowell isn't running the equipment. That's all we got to do. <laughs> Uh, I know that was a shot when he's not in the room anymore, but that was a pretty funny part of the conversation. I couldn't help myself. Yeah, well, his brothers appreciate it anyway. (laughs) Well, as we said at the close, we're happy he's where he's at, and so are his brothers. Yeah, that was funny. So, look, Jerry, there's something else that's floating around the news that I don't think we can just leave alone, as as positive as this conversation with with, uh, Director McDowell was. But, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about the change that has been proposed between the consumer price index and the chained consumer price index and how that would affect people that we serve and the regard to be able to get some benefits. But now there's another move uh, to to uh, really affect eligibility as well. You want to break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, real simply and without getting too wonky, um, people who qualify for one government program are 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 in 47 states automatically qualified for other government programs. And that's the, a very high-level view. But but there's a, there's a movement to change that um, with the idea that there's some people who are being overqualified for programs that they shouldn't be a part of. And, and it's really looking at people who are on the very margins of eligibility. You know, you have to be at 120% of poverty to be eligible for a lot of programs. Some programs go all the way up to 180% of poverty. So there is a definite difference between eligibility across programs. So they want to tighten that down. The trouble is we already have a benefit cliff that disincentivizes work. And by by looking at the problem from a pure eligibility standpoint, rather than looking at it from what are the systems that help people the most accomplish the success they want in their life, you end up making uh, bad decisions for good reasons. And I know that the Food Bank Council of Michigan has uh, uh, been asked to talk about this several times. And, and why don't you give us your perspective on that, Doctor? So our perspective at the Food Bank Council of Michigan, as we represent our seven Feeding America food banks across the state, is to weigh in on this because it, it really affects our ability to create food security. And we've all talked, you know, before on the show about the impact that SNAP has on our communities as far as food security. For every meal we provide, SNAP provides 12. So there's no way we can compete with that. We can't scale to that level, right? So these programs are vitally important in working families' lives. And so what we've said is based on the available data, and again, we echo you what you said, Jerry, in that any policy that is rushed through is going to be a bad policy. This needs to be researched. But based on the data that we have, we believe individuals and families with incomes very close to the poverty threshold, which is, you know, from the federal poverty measure, a measure that is already inaccurate and outdated, these people would be particularly hard hit by this proposed change in the rule. The proposed rule would impact their ability to save and work towards self-sufficiency. That's the goal we have for everybody, and everybody has. And so the rule is essentially a disincentive for work. This rule would make it harder for families and children to access the school meal program, for example, and that program can have lasting positive impacts on a child's lifetime achievements, and we can't afford to cut kids off from the, from the school meal program. So again, really important 
things happening here behind the scenes. There's a comment period now where, where you know, the USDA is asking, well, what do you think of this rule? So we're making our comments pretty public here to say, let's really research this. Let's look carefully at the benefit cliff. Let's look carefully at the impact on children before we make a bad decision for what might be a good reason. Yeah. And when we talk about it de-incentivizing work, essentially what we're saying is a, a, a person who isn't working uh, at 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 certain uh, twelve or fourteen dollars an hour job are pretty much ineligible for any benefits, and so sometimes when you get stuck in that job, you might look back and say, you know, back when I was making less money but had these benefits, then I was really better off. So it de-incentivizes work. Anybody can require work, Jerry. What we have to do is inspire it. And so these work supports have to last through the wage scale until people reach self-sufficiency. That's what we mean by de-incentivizing work. So I guess it's time for a little food for thought. Appreciate everyone listening. If leadership counts, if it matters... If it is the difference maker that I believe it is, then we must grow ourselves as leaders to match the size of this problem, the crisis, or the opportunity. We must grow so that we can see and seize them. So I want to encourage you as we close this show, our listeners, to reach out to a member of the agricultural community, farmers in particular, take their hand, shake it, and tell them to hang in there, weather this storm, and let them know how much you appreciate them. Remember, if you missed any of our shows, you can find it at foodsecuremichigan.org. And all of our shows are categorized by topic. That's it for today. Tune in next week for another edition of Food First Michigan. And until then, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.